Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Life Plus God podcast. I'm your host, Alyssa Robinson. And today, the big question that we are covering is how can I better love and support families with disabilities? And so I have brought uh, some people to the table who have parented children with disabilities. And I'd like to introduce them real quick. So I have Nancy Kimbrell with me. I have Liz Holland, and we also have Von Nguyen, who is our Butterfly Ministry Coordinator, which is our disabilities ministry here at Treach. So mm-hmm. I'm really happy that you're here with us and willing to share a little piece of your life with us, because I think that this is insight that we could all use a little bit more knowledge and use a little bit more compassion and understanding around. Liz and Nancy, going into your personal stories, when and how did your did you learn that your child had a disability? Um, well, my son Patrick was when I was pregnant with him, things were great. I was in the Marine Corps. My husband and I were both active duty Marines in California, and I was trying to be, you know, this tough pregnant woman at the same time Marine Corps officer and uh, just you know do it all. And I'm thinking, well, I know where I'm going to be on his due date. I don't, you know, and I, and I know after that I'll be his mom, but up until then I'm going to be really tough and just do both jobs, you know, mm-hmm. be the pregnant mom. So, um, right before I, I don't want to make the story too long, but, uh, right before I went into labor, I didn't have enough fluid around the baby. And so they went ahead and induced me on the day that I had started having contractions. And then as a result of, uh, some decisions that the doctor made. Um, they said, you know, hey, we can either just take the baby or, we can, hey, I got an idea. You know, we can we can pump some fluid in there and get you some more amniotic fluid around the baby and, and it'll be great. You can have a normal delivery. And I really don't, even the way I said it, I made it sound like a choice just now. Um, we kind of went right into cho- choice B, mm. which was let's, let's help you have a normal delivery. And... Um, because of some things that happened, he, he, on, on like two days after he was born, they said, you know, he's sick. He's really sick. You know, he's near terminal. And um, so it went from, you're about to get your son circumcised to, oh, he's really sick. Get out of the way. We're going to have a bunch of doctors around him and try to, try to save his life. And long story short, he had gotten spinal meningitis. And mm-hmm. so he was in septic shock. And and when you have a baby on a Friday in a hospital, that's not the ideal time to have a baby that's kind of any kind of problems because it's a lower number of staff around. They might not notice something as quickly. So again, long story short, he has brain damage that, um, you know, we're thankful every day that he's alive, but he was a normal baby and, and would have been fine if, if we all had made diff- different decisions and went ahead to go ahead and just take him and, and then get him out. He wouldn't have gotten spinal meningitis. He wouldn't have gone into shock, et cetera, et cetera. So we knew things are bad. And we knew on like day two or three, they were able to ultrasound his head and look in there and go, yep, you know, sorry, there's been some damage. We don't, we can't tell you how that's going to manifest itself. We can't tell you what his life is going to be like, but he's alive. And, you know, when I got to take him home, he was about a month old when Mm -hmm. I was able to take him home. He was just like everybody else's baby. He was nursing or trying to nurse or, uh, you know, crying, pooping, peeing, doing all those things. And I was just like, 
ecstatic that he was alive. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, I got a baby just like everybody else. And um, they said, it'll be up to you as parents to just see what you can do for him as far as stimulating him and giving him a lot of experiences. That's what's going to help him grow. It's going to help maybe parts of his brain take over for the other parts that got damaged. And we don't know what he's not going to be able to do. It's kind of going to just, you just help him. Help that him must be, that must have been hard not getting an actual diagnosis that there's been studies around that yeah. they're like, okay, here's the plan. Here's right. what you need to do. It's just all a big question mark yeah. of like, well, we don't know what's right and what's wrong and how this will manifest and what changes and like what, it, there's really no way to shape what your future is going to look like. Yeah. And have a plan. So when he was about nine months old, we had moved from California to here. And so again, a transition in the middle, you go from all the people and the support structure you have mm-hmm. in place and you uproot and come somewhere else and start over again. Again, it was just like I had this normal baby. I, I, he, I could tell he was floppier. I could tell he wasn't crawling. I could tell things were different, but he was, he was the only baby I had. So I was like, okay, fine. We'll just figure it out. So we took him to the uh, pediatrician and said, there's a lot of things he's not doing. And the pediatrician noticed that too. So he sent us to a neurologist and the neurologist kind of listened to our story, same story I just told you, and said, okay, well, he's got some developmental delays. And I said, yeah. And he says he's going to need some PT and some OT. I said, yeah. My husband nudged me and said, will you tell him what you thought he had? And I'd been looking through the medical kind of home medical guide. This is before the internet and stuff. Yeah. And I no had, WebMD to yeah, help you yeah. out. Yeah. I, had, I had looked at Tourette's. I mean, I looked at everything and I said, I think he's got cerebral palsy. And the doctor goes, oh yeah, he does. I just wasn't going to tell you that because I didn't want you to freak out. And some That's parents would freak out. an odd reaction from and the I, doctor. Yeah. I said, how am I going to know what to research? How am I going to yeah. know what to go look up? How am I going to yeah. know what to... Were you... Did that anger you? I kind of was like, nah. I think I would have been infuriated by yeah. that. If the doctor just, knows and chooses not to tell you because he's afraid of your reaction, either way, hurt. you're going to find out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, was, I, in a way, I was like, okay, good. The thing I had already, I had already done my research. So it felt validating in a way. Yeah. 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 yeah I get that I took too. it that way. And I went, okay. Because my husband was like, he doesn't have that. And I was like, nope. I think this is what it is. It, it matches up. So then again, no internet. You start buying books. Start looking at what other parents ahead of you have learned and and advice that's out there. And it went from there. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing, Nancy. I appreciate that. Uh, Liz, could you give us a little piece of your story? Sure. I was a very young mom uh, when I had Paul. <clears throat> we found out that he had cerebral palsy when he was 18 months old, and uh, he had been born premature, two, and a half, uh, two months premature, so the things that he was starting to do that were a little different or a little slow matched up with being premature. So <clears throat> we used to have a home nurse that came and checked on him once a month, and about the 16th or 17th month, she said, uh, I think there might be a problem. So we went to the doctor and had him diagnosed, and they told me he had cerebral palsy. Uh, The strange thing about that is, and this is where the God thing comes in, exactly a year before Paul was diagnosed with cerebral palsy, I went to a 
a day seminar thing <clears throat> with a group of people at the United Cerebral Palsy Association in Dallas. And I got to learn a lot about cerebral palsy. <clears throat> so going back up a year later, when Paul was diagnosed, it was like, okay, we can deal with this. Mm. This, if, he, if there was going to be anything wrong with him, and I know this sounds so odd to say, but if there's going to be anything wrong with him, I'm glad it's cerebral palsy because I don't have to fight, worry about, is he going to die tomorrow? Is some, you know, am I going to do something wrong? He can, we, can, we, can, we can work with this. And that was kind of my attitude. Mm-hmm. That's, that's good. I get that. Yeah. What what led you to that seminar? Because that is like some people would call it a coincidence, and some people would call it God. But, but I call it God. Yeah. So what God. is it that uh, was it like related to your career? Or you were just interested. I was in school, and it was a extra credit uh, to go, and I just wanted to know because I had never had anyone in my life that had any kind of disability. So it was just you know let me. Learn, you know, not just the extra credit at school, but just let me learn about people with uh, some type of disability. So, but I still think it was a God thing because had I not gone and then he was diagnosed, it would, I think I would have just collapsed. Mm. But, yeah. So... How did you adjust to this information? I mean, I, I'm assuming you, what I would have done is gone into a research deep dive, like you mentioned, of getting all the books, all the materials, talking to as many people as you can. But how did your life immediately change versus long-term change based on what you learned? Well, for me, immediately... Um I regretted living in a two-story house <laughs> because oh, because I, something I wouldn't have even considered. Yeah, we had we had moved to a two-story house because hey, two-story house, you get all this house on the same footprint of land. And I went, uh oh, right now I'm carrying this nine-month-old baby up and down the stairs, but that's gonna that's gonna be bad, <laughs> you know? That's really gonna be bad. So we had already started thinking about moving because of just job changes and proximity. It was no longer the best place to move. Frisco was where we were living. And so we picked, funny, we picked Louisville and we picked a builder that had some one story model models that we could walk through. And we picked a house that had, we picked one that had a bedroom where we thought, okay, Patrick doesn't ever learn to walk. He might need to just crawl into the family room. So we picked a house that had a, one of the bedrooms right there by the family room so that he could get in there. Mm-hmm. So that was our first big thing. Yeah. You know, the really big change was well, any, any big changes that the biggest change I think was that I quit school because my immediate thought was I need to get him into therapy ASAP. Mm. So I quit school. <clears throat> we, he got diagnosed right before uh, Christmas break. So I never went back to school and I immediately enrolled him into uh, Easter Seals that had therapy for him. And that was my, my biggest focus. It was just getting him the needs that I thought he needed. Vaughn, I'm curious, um, having worked with the special needs community for as long as you have, have you uh, helped any parents who are 
learning that their child has a disability and what are some of the, the big questions that they have for you or big challenges that you see them facing? Oh, there are so many. The list is just endless because with every different person, there are different challenges. But the biggest thing is um, accepting that there's something going on with your child And a lot of people stay in denial for years and years thinking, oh, this is just a phase. You know, we can work through this. He's making some progress. He's going to continue making Mm -hmm. progress and he'll just overcome this. They don't know what they're talking about. Um, I've worked with a lot of families, especially with younger kids and a lot of kids, especially with autism and things like that. They don't get diagnosed till they're four or five. And by then it's almost already too late because as soon as you find out that your child needs accommodations, you need to, like Liz said, enroll them in everything available to you right away. PT, OT, speech therapy, early development um, interventions. Well, in those early years, the brain is like a sponge. Mm-hmm. And so if as early as you can get in to help your child or to help yourself better understand like the brain development, different ways to cope, I imagine like two or three years old, you want to be in there doing that work. Absolutely. And it's even more than just the PTOT, it's what's going to happen to your child when you're older and not able to take care of them. Mm-hmm. Right now, the HCS program is a program um, that provides group homes and foster care for adults with special needs. And the waiting list when I was there 10 years ago was a 20-year waiting list. Oh, my gosh. And so you have your child and you don't find out that there's something wrong until they're five or six and you're in denial for another five years. They're 10 years old by the time you enroll them. And then you wait 20 years and it's, they might get in when they're 30. But a lot of people wait even longer than that. And um, a lot of families would like to think that their, their families would step in and their kids would step in to take care of their brother or sister if something happens to them. But a lot of times they can't because of their work schedule, because they have their own family, they have their own kids, or simply just that their brother or sister have been living with mom and dad so long that they refuse to go. They don't know anything else. And that transition for them, the older they get, is a lot harder than when you start them off in, you know, normal age in your 20s. Okay, you know, we're an adult now and we're going to move into a group home and you're going to have support and you'll be around your friends. And um, moving someone from their home to like a state school or a group home when they're in their 40s and 50s is a lot harder than when they're supposed to leave the home and and leave the nest whenever they're in their 20s. Well, and that's the same story for someone who is neurotypical Mm -hmm. to say it's hard. It's hard to make changes when you're 40, 45, 50 and to uproot yourself. Like it's, it's not easy. And then to add in, um, a disability to that where your life is sculpted around you a certain way to make it to where you can engage with the community. You can travel, you can go to work, you can go to school, to church, whatever it is. Um, Liz and Nancy, do Paul and Patrick still live at home or are they in a, yeah? Yeah. Patrick does. Yeah. Paul does too. And we've talked about, um, when we're going to make changes. And originally we said, uh, 
Paul, I told Paul, when you're 50 years old, I'm going to get real serious about putting you, you know, put, you know, finding a place for you to live. And it, we were okay with that. Um, we've had some, the last three years have been a little rocky with the home front. So he said, Mom, I'm adding five years. You need me right now. So, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I do have a strong family. I would like to see him live somewhere independently. Uh, at the same time, you know, just when you think you're going to, it's scary to let your child, I mean, to me, he's still my child. And it's scary to let him go because I know at home he's safe, mm-hmm. but in a different environment, he may or may not be safe. And it's really hard to do that. Mm-hmm. So, but he's open to it. We've talked about it. And uh, he does have a sister, and we do have a, a strong family. At the same time, she has some serious health issues, so I don't want to put that on her. So, But he's pretty open. I think the ideal thing for Paul would be something like an assistant living facility, mm-hmm. which I don't understand why they don't have one for people with special needs. Yeah, the age requirement with having to be a certain age before you can go there. Well, a special needs person is going to need that at a younger age than than just the normal population. Yeah. Well, you have to think everything in this population moves extra slow. So progress is made with Mm -hmm. um, gender equality and then racial equality. And then, you know, there's this community's very, very last thing that people are concerned about. They didn't even start... um, opening up schools, public schools for children with special needs until 1950s. Mm. They were separated in their own little facilities that were very abusive and they exploited them and, and everything you could imagine. And so it's a very slow progress. They didn't even start training teachers to deal with and to deal with behaviors and the medical needs of of children until like the 1950s. Mm. Well, and for a lot of people with disabilities, it's almost impossible to advocate for yourself. You need to have someone else who's willing to be your ally and advocate for you, which is for uh, rights and for uh, the American with Disabilities Act and all of these things. It takes forever because they don't have enough people fighting for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I could see how everything moves really Very slowly. Slow. And it's um, a lot of it is the way that mental retardation and physical disabilities has been seen in the past. And a lot of it is Christianity based. They believe that if, you know, you had a child with something, you did something, you were being punished for a sin that you committed or a sin that your parents committed for hundreds and hundreds of years, and you would hide that away. Even the Queen of England, she had siblings with special needs, and they're hidden away. No one even knows about them. I, that, this is the first I'm hearing yes. of it. So many. So, so many. And just recently, I think starting in the 1970s is when it became acceptable for people with um, special needs to work in the community and be a part of the community because before then they were in um, facilities like the state school and they were in asylums and things like that, the group homes and, you know, you seeing them working at the grocery store, holding regular jobs like other people with job coaching. That's a relatively new development just 
you know, in the 1970s, 50 years ago. In the the time of raising your kids, in the time of, so you've learned that they have cerebral palsy, you're going into those younger development years, then into teenage years, into adulthood. What are some of the things that you learned about your child or that you learned about yourself that was really unexpected or surprising during that time? Um, I would say one thing, when I was a young, probably not even married yet woman, I was walking in the parking lot of a grocery store and I saw a woman putting a wheelchair in the back of her car. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, that would be like, oh wow, that would be the worst thing in the world. That would be the worst thing to have a handicapped child. And I assumed it was her child's wheelchair. And, um, and then back to the story I told you before, when they said your son's sick and he's near terminal and you know, he may die. Mm. I kind of went, my brain went, Oh, there's something worse. (laughs) There's definitely something worse for me at that moment. And so, um, I learned I, I'm, I'm going to do this and I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, hoist myself up and, and do this to the best of my ability. And I, again, had other children after that, which makes it more complicated. Now you have a handicapped child and you. Are, I'd love and, to hear more about that dynamic. Yeah. And um, and then you're worried, is this next child is is about to learn to walk? What's that going to do to the first child? Because he's not walking yet. Is he going to melt down? And you're mm-hmm. like, okay, how can I distract them? So you, you I found myself trying to kind of uh, grow extra and te- te- tentacles and arms and ways to uh, you know, kind of circus perform and do multiple things at once to keep one kid happy and the other kid happy and, mm. and, you know, and hoist that wheelchair into the car in the, and, and it's not that hard, you know? So that's one thing. I've always had the thought that or I was brought up with the thought that it could always be worse. And I was just always so grateful that he was able to do as much as he could because I knew other people that couldn't had children that couldn't. So for me, it was just like, he's doing pretty good. So we'll just, we'll just kind of go with, and I think part of it was the fact that I was just so young that it didn't really, I'm not saying it didn't matter because it did matter. I mean, but Paul always had such a positive attitude. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had a, I'll never forget one time I witnessed a, a kids asking him, you know, Paul, why are you walking like that? And he just looked at him straight in the face and said, I walk a lot better than I used to. That's a great attitude. And and, I mean, he was an innocent kid. He was just asking. Yeah. But okay. So we just always kind of had the attitude. It could always be worse. Yeah. And and, because Paul can talk, he can eat, you know, you know, he can go to the bathroom. There's just so much that he can do that we really don't focus on the things he couldn't do. Where did that positivity come from? Was it you like reinforcing any time that he did a, a new development or took a new step or whatever that you really celebrated it? Or did it just come naturally to him? I really think it came from my parents. My parents just always had the attitude that, you know, you can just do it. Mm-hmm. You can, you know, you can do it and it can always be worse. I mean, that's my mother's favorite saying was it can always be worse. <laughs> so and, and, It's very encouraging. <laughs> so we just dealt with it. We just dealt with it. Yeah. But you do have the guilt when you have a second child, because I did have, you know, I have a daughter also uh, that was born a little bit, at, oh, 15 months after Paul was born. 
And uh, you feel guilty because you focus so much on the child that does have the disability that she's kind of in the background. Mm -hmm. And the way I tried to compensate for that was that uh, her and I got to do some special things. You know, we would do things that, you know, maybe without Paul would leave him with my grand, with his grandparents or something. And we would, you know, have our special day or do something, Mm -hmm. or at least I tried, you know, I did try to, you know, reward her in other ways, but she was always extremely supportive of her brother and it was just second nature. Yeah. Well, and, and that's what I'd love to hear about the sibling dynamic and, um, all of your kids are adults now. So have y'all been able to have conversations with them about like their experience growing up as the sibling to someone with disabilities? We haven't had any real big, you know, Hey, let's sit down and talk. Cause it's just such yeah. a part of life. Yeah, yeah, it is a part of life. And it's, um, it's, it's, it's their reality. It's, it's the, the kind of the sphere in the world they're in. And, um, I think what they have, the perspective they can have is kind of what Liz was just talking about is they saw what was difficult for their brother. The two girls saw what was difficult. And then the two, he has two older brothers too. I have two stepsons. Um, and they, they can kind of like go, wow, you know, if I have a little bit of jealousy because mom or dad has to focus, it's like, I got to think about what I have. And, and I, I think it works its way out. It seems like they might have moments and when they're younger and they can't really. And I just want the attention. Yeah. 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 But I think, I think all in all, it balances out to where they understand mm. deep down that they've, they were given certain abilities and their sibling wasn't. And so they, I don't know, it, it works. Mm. I think so, too. I think as my daughter is an adult, I think she realizes I just did the best I could, and we just did the best we could. She always had Paul in her life, so she didn't know any different. Has your faith transformed as a result of raising a child with disabilities, or do you think that you see God in in different ways than you did before? I think I, I definitely, um, when I was really uh, a young parent and struggling and, and, and trying to figure out, you know, why did this happen to me? And I was not maybe having a good day and thinking, Hey, yay, he's alive. Um, I was even actually listening to a sermon one time and, and a pastor said, um, things don't happen to you because of other things you've done in life. That's, that's not how it works. So, um, okay. That's one thought. And, um, the other thought I've had is I'll be taking Patrick places and um, I'm, it's just a normal day for us. We're going into Walmart. We're cr- trying to get through the hot parking lot without falling down and, you know, whatever. Um, and he'll actually have an interaction with other people. And one time there was a guy out front of the Walmart trying to, you know, shaking a can, trying to get some money and stuff. And Patrick just went up to him and I was thinking, oh God, I don't have any money in my purse. You know, I've just got my credit cards. And, and the man didn't care about the money. He just started chatting with Patrick and Patrick was chatting with him. And, and then the man turned to me and I was like, I'm so sorry. I don't have any money today. And he goes, he goes, that boy is right with God. Mm. And I, my heart just got really big and, and it, and it really helped me realize that Patrick does bring that out in people and in finds people that, 
Um, maybe you're just having a rough day and he picks them out and I'm thinking, oh gosh, don't talk to that person. They look kind of crabby or they're distracted or whatever. And he'll get them turned around and get them smiling and talking and handing them their car keys and, you know, other things like that. And so I, I see that God is right. He is right with God and he, and he is a, a shining light every day, which it's hard to remember to be that, that way myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and Vaughn, I mean, I'd love to hear from you as the special needs ministry head around here. Like, what is it that you are pouring into these, uh, adults and kids? We don't have as many kids in our ministry, but these adults, um, in spiritual growth and what is it that you see within them growing spiritually? Um, they're amazing. And so I think people have it backwards. People see them as broken and not whole. And um, I see it as the opposite. I see them as God's perfect angels. They experience joy exactly the way it's supposed to be experienced without worrying about what other people are going to think, if they laugh too loudly or if they dance for joy when they're sad, when they're upset, they will express that emotion exactly the way it is. There's no motives. There's no, it's just what you see is what you get. And there, I think we need to be more like that. Mm. We need to not hide as much. If when we're happy, we need to be happy. When we're sad, we need to be sad. There's no shame in what they're feeling. For the most part, they are honest people. They will tell you exactly what they're thinking, how they're thinking, and what you need to do about it. Mm. And they're not sorry because they don't care what you think because they're righteous and they have their own um, they have they they have their own thoughts. They have their own opinions, and I wish people knew that. Yeah. And everyone has a different relationship with God. The best thing is they live life treating people the way they want to be treated. They genuinely do. They talk to you like they would talk to anyone else. They don't like, excuse my language. They don't dumb it down like a lot of people dumb it down for them. Like if you see me speak to them, I speak to them exactly the way I would speak to you. And a lot of people don't realize that they're a lot more capable and they understand a whole lot more than they assume. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think I went off on a tangent. (laughs) Well, but that's actually one of the things I love about the work that you've been doing within Butterfly Ministry is I think that in the past and we're slowly because everything moves slowly, slowly Mm -hmm. transforming as a church. But in the past, I think that we have seen Butterfly Ministry as an over there ministry and people that we, that are in need of our service in need of our care. And you're saying, no, no, no. These are fully formed people created in the image of God who have Mm -hmm. Christ within them. And we are here to serve you. We are also here to learn. We want to be a part of this church congregation. And I think we've been guilty in the past of setting butterfly ministry aside. Yeah. And a lot of people think um this population is just a population that has their hand out and just wants to receive receive you know give me donations give me funding give me special resources that aren't access that not accessible to other people they don't realize that they have so many gifts to offer i mean with our our little butterfly ministry there's not very many people 
in our ministry, but, you know, they've donated money to other ministries. They volunteer and they participate in church activities and church events. And Paul does everything in the world. He travels all over the Metroplex, even to Austin, to advocate for our Special Olympics and um, everything else. And so they're just as productive members of society as you and I. We just got to give them the opportunity. We might have to go about it in a different way. Yeah, they just do things differently. But But they can do everything we can. They can hold jobs just like us. They can, you know, get married and have families and have relationships with friends and um, have careers and educations and just like the rest of us. Like I wish people just knew they're just like the rest of us. Liz, how about your, your faith journey? How, what, what's changed for you uh, in your relationship with God? To Paul, when he was, I'm going to guess, uh, seven or eight years old. I'll never forget this as long as I live. We were at the table, and the chair was falling down. And he grabbed the chair, and he said, God, help me. And he picked that chair up like it was nothing. Hmm. And I thought, he's got it. He's got it. Going to the Butterfly Ministry, he just came back from a wonderful camp that uh, with the Methodist Church. And I asked him, I said, well, Paul, why don't you, you know, number one, he loves the camp. So he, it's not that I don't want him to go there. I just thought in addition to Sikh camp, you might consider going to another special needs camp that's in the area just for the weekend, you know. I'm not doing that, Mom. I said, well, how come? He said, Sikh camp teaches about God. They don't. Mm. I thought, wow. <laughs> okay, Paul. Yeah. So I was just, he, under, he understands a lot more than what people give people, you know, credit to people with special needs. Looking at our faith and, and when you're reading scripture, are there any stories in the Bible that you feel like you really connect with because of your experiences that you might interpret differently than someone else because you have been raising a child with special needs? Okay. Um, I'm not going to be able to be specific, but the story about where... Um... Okay. I can't even remember who's the guy that needs to have his mat moved and he need he's he's like uh he can't even get to, into the water but um so he's always dependent upon other people to get him moved around and then he gets healed and then they're like he he doesn't need that anymore. I'm I'm so being all over the map. I can't it's how embarrassing. You need to cut this one. No, I know the one. <laughs> I know the one of the a uh, man on the mat being lowered through the roof, through the okay. roof by I, Jesus I'm, with I'm his friends. I, I, I think I'm yes. mixing stories up. But I think there is yeah. another story yeah. of that I don't know as yeah. well. Yeah. Anyways, I just know it does take a lot to uh, help a handicapped person in today's day and age. But I remember thinking back, I'm amazed that anyone even lived to adulthood in Jesus' time who was handicapped. I mean, that's what I thought was amazing is that there must have been parents all throughout history and families and friends and support structure that we don't really know about, but there's evidence of it in the Bible. 
And the fact that they're there and they have a community support. That they lived them. into adulthood because yeah. there's yeah. like no way. And so I, I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that. But well, I mean, I imagine that that brings some comfort of like parents have been loving their kids through and with their disabilities for thousands of years. And if they can do it, I can do it. Yes. And if Jesus sees them, Jesus sees my son, you know? Um, yeah, I think that that, that is, and honestly, that's a piece of the story that I hadn't ever thought of before of the fact that they are an adult with a disability and they are alive and thriving in that time to the best that they could. Yeah. Um, that, that says a lot that we didn't even think about the fact, Oh, most likely they wouldn't survive in that harsh yes. way of living. Yeah. If this person couldn't take care of their own basic needs, someone was taking care of it for them. Yeah. And they didn't have fancy expensive equipment. Yeah. There's no running water and medicine and any of that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Adaptive aids. They just made do with what yeah. they had. Yeah. So it just shows how important community is. Yeah. And it takes a village because you know that single mom raising her child wasn't doing it by herself. I really feel like Paul's a blessing, not just to me, but to so many other people because he brings out kindness in people. I really believe that there's a lot more kind people in this world than not. Oh, he's one of the and, number one encouragers of and, our staff. And he, <laughs> yes. And he just... Uh, he brings out the good in people, even people that you don't think are really, have maybe not have done a lot of good things in their life. They make room once they find, once they have a friendship with Paul, they make room or they have met Paul and they, they go out of their way to help other people with special needs. So, What do you think it is about him and about Patrick that, that brings that out of people? Because what I'm hearing from both of you is that, like you said, people make room, people open up to experience their presence. What, what is that special element? Oh, it's Paul's personality. Yeah. He has never met a stranger. He will befriend every person he meets. Same thing with Patrick. And he, Paul initiates and Patrick initiates the conversation with people. Mm -hmm. And so when he does that, he takes away that barrier and that fear is gone. And they're like, oh, He's just a normal person. He's pretty cool. And he wants me to be his friend on Facebook. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so they get to know him and they realize that they have so much in common. And that's what they do is they break down the barriers because they have humor and they are, you know, they're witty and they're intelligent and they're snarky and they're wonderful people. And so everyone has a gift. And there's a scripture that says that if you don't use your gift that God gave you, it will be taken away. And so those are their gifts. You know, Becky's gift is just love. She will just love on you, tell you how beautiful you are, call you sweetheart and honey. And that's her gift. And she pours it out all day, every day. Hmm. Um, everyone does a Kenny too. (laughs) (laughs) Kenny is just like the guys. He'll walk up to anyone and strike a conversation. Granted, they don't understand a single word coming out of his mouth, but he puts a smile on their face yeah. and they will make sure to say hi to him the next time they see him. 
Yeah. I think that there's also something to being fully present in the moment in any moment that they're in, because I've had conversations with Paul online (laughs) and because he, we're Facebook friends, you know, and he'll send me a message every now and then. And he is so kind and present and he genuinely wants to know you. And I think that in this busy, chaotic world that we live in, we all become so absorbed with our own schedules and what is it that I'm trying to accomplish that we don't take the time to be present in the moment and actually be with someone and let them feel known and loved. And I have experienced firsthand with Paul that he does that. I haven't had the chance to speak to Patrick, but it sounds like he does that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that's just incredible. Um, Vaughn, with the Bible stories, what are some of the, the favorite Bible stories that uh, the butterflies just love to hear on Sunday mornings when y'all are teaching? Oh, we teach them everything. Like the last, um, what we did this past weekend was, what was it? It was, um, I wish I had my little devotional book with me, but we have this cute little devotional for, for preschoolers, which is easy to understand and it has pictures and um but oh it's um lord in the night i remember who you are and so we talked about everything god is god is our creator he is our protector he is our friend he is our provider and a lot of our butterfly ministries they aren't members of the methodist church they are members of all other denominations but they're not as blessed to have a ministry that caters to them. And so they come here and we accept and love everybody. And so we have the same Sunday school curriculum as any other Sunday school class mm-hmm. with fun art projects. And, you know, we help with donuts and coffee. We'll be doing that this weekend. So if you're at church, come get some donuts from Kenny and Becky and whoever else is here <laughs> and Paul will be here. Um, but we do, we just, we learn how to be wonderful people and we learn how God is present in our life every day and um, how we can use our gifts to serve other people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the same mission statement as everyone else here in the church. Yeah, I think that there's a lot we can learn from the butterflies because I, from what I see, which not all of us are very good at. They learn about God, learn about Jesus, and then live it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and we're not so good at that. We hold all the knowledge, but then we just let ourselves get in the way. Um, back back to the parenting. What do you wish other parents understood about raising a child with disabilities? I don't know about you guys, but for me, I've noticed if you have questions, just ask them. Instead of staring and hiding and being afraid, just ask. I think there's a lot of fear of offending. Yes. Yeah. And it shouldn't be a fear. Curiosity is a good thing. Yeah. I would second that. Uh, the, um, The moms that let their child ask the question, um, I don't know how they've gotten to that place in their life. but it, it works the best. I had I, Patrick would be going to a grocery store and have a walker and another kid would come up and go, me next. I want to do it next. Like he thought it was a toy. And the mom that let Patrick explain back to her child or me, um, you know, 
like, a, and she just had some grace to sort of let it happen because I think the natural reaction is, no, Johnny, get away from him. You know, yeah. that, don't hurt that poor little handicapped child. You know, it's, um, and I've seen it both ways where some, they're just, they're just appalled. They're, I'm so sorry. I'm so mm-hmm. sorry. They're apologizing and, and no, it's fine. And then you're just creating more of a wall and a barrier yes. between these kids yeah. as opposed to allowing yeah. an interaction. Yeah. Cause the kid was looking at Patrick, wanting Patrick to explain and, you know, yeah. So I yeah. think, yeah, ditto. Asking questions is good and, and mm-hmm. being let letting the interaction happen between yeah. child to child. Yeah, so much better than shunning your kids away and mm-hmm. turning them away so they will not see it. You mm-hmm. want them to see them. Yeah. They want to be seen that you want to build relationships yeah. and connections. And the only way to do that is to have a conversation with somebody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's hard to compare, but what are some extra stressors that you think you have that other parents may have no idea that you're experiencing? For Paul, it's accessibility. Yeah. Uh, you take for granted that everybody can go up and down a curb. Mm. Uh, the new ramps do help, but uh, they just don't think of the obstacles. Of I'll give you an example. We would go to the movies. <clears throat> And right by the family bathroom and next to the men's bathroom, they had a giant trash can because people are used to uh, washing their hands, opening the door with a paper towel, then throwing it in the trash. So instead of people throwing it on the ground or on the floor, the manager put this gigantic trash can there. Well, with the gigantic trash can there, Paul can't get in the bathroom. Because he can't get access, he can't move his walker to get inside. Mm. So every time I would go to the movies, I would ask the manager and politely let them know that that was an obstacle. He can't get in the bathroom because that trash can's there. So about the fourth or fifth time I did this, and I try to be careful because I'm trying to educate people, not be angry. So I actually, I said, let me take you over there, and I'm going to take Paul over there. When they physically were able to see what I was trying to say, they moved the trash can. Mm-hmm. And I said, the problem is, whenever I say something, the trash can gets moved, but the next time I'm here, they just put right back. Well, she finally said, it won't happen again. And the last several times I've been there, the trash can has been moved to a totally different area and she has educated these employees not to move that trash can Mm. so i mean for me it's just obstacles more than anything else well and the amount of patience that you have that you said four or five times that you went to the movies this Mm -hmm. happened and then instead of getting angry said let me show you like let me show i I don't have that patience. I would have been angry and been like, hey, this is basic human dignity. We all need to use the bathroom. Move this trash can. Like I would, but you can't go through the world that way. And I'm guessing that's just one of hundreds of examples of you needing to slowly educate people um, around Paul's needs. Yeah, it's just... They don't understand, and and I'm glad they don't understand because they're not having to experience it. But you have to teach people to be in their shoes sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's about changing hearts. 
And with that, it's totally against the law. There's ADA rules. Right. There's nothing supposed right. to be obstructed. I don't be like, oh, excuse me, sir. I know. That's what Vaughn would be like. Um, do you know that you're in violation of ADA? Exactly. And uh, I have an attorney. So like, I want to report this. There's a number right here I can call right yeah. now. If you know, but the best way to change the world is not forcibly like you can't force anyone they to have change. to be able to see it yes yeah. and you do that by changing their hearts mm-hmm. by making it their problem once yeah. people aren't worried about themselves like this doesn't affect me so i'm not worried about it when they start thinking about other people you know when we become a community and um become more aware of each other that's when things change and like and so They've seen, so everyone has seen my kids and then my sister's kids. They hang out with the Butterfly Ministry. We do everything with them. And it's because I'm changing that. I'm raising kids who grow up with this population and I'm making this population seen to all the kids here at church. The kids here at church aren't scared of them like they were when I first started. Mm. When I first started, we were trying to give out Halloween candy and half the children did not want to take candy from them because they were scared because they've never seen them before. Oh, wow. But once they came in and then they saw, oh, this is just Chase. Oh, he has a name. Mm-hmm. He has candy. He's a pretty nice dude. And so when you do that and you change their hearts and then you take away the fear, that's when everything changes. Because mm-hmm. my kids now, they don't see their disabilities. They play with them, hang out with them, do everything for them. They observe and they notice without even asking for help, they'll notice someone drop something. And yeah. they'll pick it up from, they'll automatically open the doors. They advocate for them. If someone is being rude or um, saying something that's not nice to them, they speak up. And it's not just with them here with the Butterfly Ministry. My kids do it at school. They're the ones that sit and play with the kids on the playground who aren't able to go on the playground because their wheelchair can't get into the mulch. And so they'll sit and play with them on the on the cement and bounce a ball with them. And so... You just slowly have to change hearts in order to change the world. You can't force anyone. Like no one, you can't force someone to be nice to you. They'll tolerate you, but we don't want them to be tolerated. Well, and I do hope that those parenting norms are changing because for me, when I was growing up, it was the norm. Like the number one thing is stop staring. Don't stare, you know, and, but no, um, regard to, Hey, I see that you're staring. Do you have any questions? Like, do you, is, what are you thinking? Like, what are you feeling? And for me, that meant, oh, I'm not supposed to engage. Uh, Mm -hmm. Don't look, don't, you know, it's rude, whatever it is. And so there was this barrier created. Um, So I really do hope that that's changing with parenting styles. And I'm glad that you're doing that within your own family, but then also guiding our families at this church Mm -hmm. to do the same thing. And uh, because I know with our previous butterfly ministry coordinator, she, her big campaign was don't stare, say hello. (laughs) (laughs) And so that was the starting point for this church of, oh, okay, we can just say hello. And that's, good, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's so simple, but like, I guess we've been trained out of it. I don't Mm -hmm. know. Cause out of sight, out of mind, like I said, in the past, they were put away for no one to see Mm -hmm. and you didn't want anyone to know. 
that you had a family member who was different, but it, things are so different now. There's Finding Nemo with his little fin, mm-hmm. you know, and the Gimpy fin. That's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in all. It's in all the movies now. The kids are so used to it because there are special ed classes now. They didn't have that when you know there were only a few kids in special ed classes when I was at school. I there was one kid in a wheelchair at the school I went to. Um, and when he punched my brother in the face for being rude to him, we found out he was just like everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) His brakes must have been locked because he couldn't. Yeah. So my little brother was punched (laughs) by the one kid in our school. That's awesome. In the special ed class. But it's, there's a new Peter Pan movie and there's a, a little, I think it's a little boy with Down syndrome. In uh, there, one of the lost boys. Yes, yes one of the I lost boys that. has Down syndrome, and there, there's a Down syndrome model. She's beautiful. Yeah. She's a mainstream supermodel in ad campaigns, and you see it everywhere now. And and I so think that slowly, TikTok has also like been huge for the community with disabilities mm-hmm. to be able to say, "Hey, look, I'm a human being. Yes. Like, here's what I experience every day. Here's some mm-hmm. of the challenges that I face, but I also do all of the same things that you do. And yes. I'm going roller skating, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing that. And I think that it's been very connecting, mm-hmm. so that it's no longer out of sight, out of mind. We're like, no, we're all in this and t- together. We're all community. Yes. Um. So. How how could the church community better love and support our children and adults with disabilities or neurodivergence? Because you already mentioned, you know, autism. There are a lot of both visible and invisible disabilities within our church, and they aren't all in butterfly ministry. What are what can we do to better love and support and be more accommodating? I don't know. I think we do a really good job here. I was going to say the um, same thing. You do a fantastic job, and uh, I'm so proud of Yvonne. Oh, thank you. And But I think so many people in the church are are reaching out because Paul mentions people's names and, you know, what you were saying earlier as far as Paul being present. I always say Paul has a great memory because he wants to know about you. If he finds out you went to Texas Tech, I mean, he's going to know everything about Texas Tech or whatever, just so the next time he sees you, he has something to talk to you about. And I am so envious of his ability to be (laughs) present and to be a great listener. I want to be a great listener, and I'm not, you know, and I think, you know, how does he do it? And he's present. Yeah. He's not thinking about yesterday or what's going to happen tomorrow, even though he does do that. But when he's, <laughs> but when he's with you, he's only thinking about you. And I think that just opens up your heart to, to people with like Paul. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like what we can do is respond, be fully present when we have those moments and they have those interactions to engage and to not be too busy and not keep walking and not wave people off, but to be a part of this community and not see it as something separate or a separate ministry within the church, but a part of our congregation and our flock. I also think that if once you open your heart to somebody with some special needs. If you treat every child that way, every child, whether they have special needs or not, 
it's going to be a lot better community. Mm. Exactly. That's beautiful. Don't yeah. treat anyone any differently. And that's the one thing I've always wondered. It's like, why do you call it special needs when the one thing they yearn for is to be exactly like everybody else? Mm. Sounds like they don't want to be special. They just want to be like everybody else. And so that's probably one of the reasons why the word special needs is being slowly filtered out because they don't want to be special. Yeah. Because we are we don't all wanna, special. Yeah. We don't want to be a part. We want to be mm-hmm. part. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess part of that for me, and it might be different when someone has a younger child. For me, I have a 50-year-old son. Mm-hmm. So when I'm communicating with someone and say, Oh yeah, I'm. You know, I uh, did this for Paul or something, or you know, my son lives with me, and they, you know, most fifty-year-old men don't live with their mom. Mm-hmm. Most fifty-year-old men don't have to work on being able to hang up their clothes. Yeah. Most fifty-year-old men aren't waited on by their mom, and I guess for me, it just makes it easier to say, "Well, I have an adult son with special needs." Yeah, because yeah. I don't want them to think there's something wrong with him well because he does have different requirements and different accommodations and so and in the same way that each of us are different his differences just have more of an external effect but um so i i i totally understand um from your perspective saying, Hey, his needs are special. (laughs) (laughs) Our life is special and set apart because of that. Um, so finding, finding the right language is always hard, but just finding language that, uh, we're a loving community and we're in this together. And maybe there is no language for that and we shouldn't be having separate, you know, Mm. language, but Mm. I appreciate all of your input. Well, thank you for having us. I appreciate it too. Yeah, I loved having y'all on. Thank you so much for opening your lives to us. And I know that that's not always easy to do. So I appreciate you sharing your stories and your insight. And uh, there's no doubt in my mind, God is working through your kids. Mm-hmm. I think so too. Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity though. Yeah. To be included in just to be heard. To yeah. be heard. Exactly. Yeah. And so hopefully someone will learn something from this. All right. I do want to say one last thing. Okay. Going, going back to the movies, I did make it a point that when I noticed a trash can had been permanently moved, I did ask for the manager and I said, thank you. Thank you for doing this. And it's made a difference. So I don't just bring up the bad I'll try to positive reinforcement keep your eyes open for ways that you can create more accessibility exactly (laughs) thank you so much the life plus God podcast is hosted written and produced by me Alyssa Robinson and sponsored by Treach Memorial United Methodist Church in Flower Mound Texas If you live in the Flower Mound area, I invite you to stop by and see if Treach could be your new church family. You can learn more about all of our programs and events at tmumc.org. And I hope to catch you next week for our next episode of the Life Plus God podcast.